All right. So, um, you've got your handout, hopefully. If they don't, Tyler's got the handouts, I guess. Okay, Tyler's on handout duty. Thanks, Tyler. You see that the opening section here is the big idea is that God's saving work demonstrates both His gloriously powerful wrath and His gloriously powerful mercy. Uh, This section, Romans 9 through 11, you've got Paul answering the question, what is God doing with Israel? That's the question that Paul's answering. And it takes three chapters to give an answer, and the answer that he gives certainly doesn't answer all of our questions, and that's okay. Uh, In the midst of answering this question, though, what is God doing with Israel, Paul has been giving us a subsection. So the, the grand section is, what is God doing with Israel? And there's a subsection that we've been in where he's saying God is free to do whatever he wants. He's not exactly putting forth a uh, you know, great detail, detailed answer of what he is doing, but he's saying he is free to do whatever he is doing, whatever he wants to do, that he has freedom to do whatever he wants, both with Jews and with Gentiles. So it's important for us to keep in mind the beginning and end of this section and understand kind of, uh, you know, what Paul is specifically doing in the section we're in. But let's go to the end of Romans 11, actually, and let's start there this morning to remind ourselves of where this all ends up. In Romans 11:33, look at what Paul has to say uh, at the end of his answer. At the end of the answer, what, of what is God doing with Israel? He says this, starting in Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So, that's where Paul ends with this answer, God's ways are past our ways. The depth of His wisdom, how deep is it? Well, very, very deep. We can't measure it. And uh, through this section, He may be giving us some answers to our questions, some of the what's perhaps He's answering. What is God doing? Maybe He gives an answer here and there. He doesn't really give us much in way of the how. How is God doing all this? How does all this work? He doesn't really answer those questions. And that's okay because he's telling us what we need to know under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So back in chapter 9, look up with me at uh, the start of this section in verse 4. He talks about the Israelites here. He says, these Israelites, to them belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh and who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So Paul is launching into this section talking about what God is doing with Israel, and that's how he opens it up. And his big point is there at the start of verse 6, what he's seeking to prove to his readers is that it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because you've got this strange situation where the Israelites were chosen by God. It's very, very clear. You read through the, your Hebrew Scriptures, they're chosen by God. He chose, God chose a nation. He made a nation. He chose a nation. But then you've got a whole bunch of them, the vast majority of them, aren't believing in the Messiah. So what is going on? That's quite a conundrum, isn't it? 
And that's what Paul is seeking to answer, that how could it be that the Word of God has not failed? And so he goes into this subsection that we've been in for the last few weeks where he's talking about God has freedom to do whatever he wants to do in electing people to salvation. And then he will go on to explain how this affects Jews and Gentiles, how this affects those human entities. But he's first establishing the freedom of God because that's most important. God is free to do whatever he wants. And then from there, he'll answer how that affects the uh, human institutions. So he's demonstrating on the one hand that Jews are being saved. There's a remnant, there's a seed that God is preserving of Israel. And he's going to answer explicitly in chapters 10 and 11 that that seed is going to grow, that there's going to be a mass conversion of Israel. All Israel will be saved. But for the moment, there's a remnant. And on the other hand, secondly, Gentiles are being saved now too. God's also bringing alongside believing Gentiles. So that's what God's up to. The word hasn't failed because Israel's condition is exactly what God willed Israel's condition to be. The word of God hasn't failed. But what's happening to them is exactly what God wanted to happen to them. So um, I want to give us an overview of this vessel business before getting on to some new stuff today. Uh, We see in our verses that we're going to cover, starting at verse 22, that God has made two vessels. Look down with me at verse 22 where Paul says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, Dean covered a lot of this last week. There's a lot to see here, so I'm just seeking to come alongside and and compliment that teaching. If you missed last week's lesson, look it up and listen to that. But we we learn here that there are two two vessels that the sovereign has made to display his attributes among creation. God is displaying his attributes to all of creation through these two vessels. And look back at verse 21. Maybe we should have started with verse 21 where it says that the potter has a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. And he asks it in the form of a question, but we get the idea that, yes, he does have the right, doesn't he, to do such a thing. So let's illustrate this. You've got your sheet in front of you. You see those little cartoon vessels? I made those on paint. I'm really proud of those. So, uh, and, I, and I drew them again on the board. Uh, they, they don't match perfectly like they do on the sheet, but there are the two vessels. And uh, let's think through this illustration. The first thing we need to identify is this lump in the middle, the lump of clay. And as Paul is giving this illustration here, he says in verse 21 that the, there's one lump of clay that these two vessels come out of. And so this is the clay. It kind of looks like a cloud on your sheet because... <laughs> there you go. I, I took it from their clip art on Microsoft Word. I think it's supposed to be a cloud. But it's a lump of clay today, okay? It's a lump of clay. And that clay, we understand, is sinful humanity, right? This is sinful humanity, deserving of wrath, deserving of condemnation, sinful humanity that has fallen, that has rebelled against God. And so we want to first get that in our minds. God is making from one lump these two vessels, humanity condemned in their sin. But what we also see in verse 21 specifically, for both of these vessels, God is the one doing the making. So you've got arrows there you can write. 
God makes <laughs> because he's making both vessels. He makes one for honor and one for dishonor, it says. He has the right to do so. God makes one for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. And we're going to start by talking about the dishonorable vessel, which you have on the right side of your sheet. And uh, when you think of these vessels, you know, in your mind, this might be a small thing like a cup. Uh, it could be a big thing. Uh, we've got some vessels that we use here. I thought about bringing them in. We've got uh, these fake plant things that are in those clay vessels that we have around. I thought about bringing one of those in and then bringing in a trash can because you've got two vessels and... The problem is they're not made from the same material. We would need them to be made from the same lump of clay, but that's okay. You get the idea. One is for honorable use. We're showing it off. It's decorative. It's, it's nice to look at. And the other is for common or dishonorable or even disgraceful use, how that word is used in the New Testament. And so to get this image in our mind, we can uh, start to illustrate this with uh, making our dishonorable vessel look like a dishonorable vessel. You can put a crack in it. You can put a, uh, you know, they had to put a bandage on it there. Um, we could even chip the edges. There's some physical wear and tear because it's used all the time. So it doesn't have that perfect, pristine uh, nature anymore. It's somewhat falling apart. They could even, you know, maybe it was used as a trash can. And so let's see, what did they, what kind of animals did they slaughter. Then we'll just say a duck. There's a dead duck that's in there, okay? And we'll put, uh, we'll put his feet out here. Uh, so there's the, that, and he's got his bones all in there. And it's a, oh, it's stinky. It's stinky because it's a common, common use vessel, disgraceful vessel. So there's a common looking vessel for you. <clears throat> oh, if there's a dead duck in there, there's probably some drips of blood running down the outside. Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. Okay, there we go. Now you're getting the picture. That's a common use vessel, right? It's a trash can. Um, and that's actually where sin leads, isn't it? Death, decay, things dying, falling apart. Sin doesn't lead to glory. Sin doesn't lead to beauty, but that's actually where sin leads. So you've got this dishonorable vessel. So keep that illustration in your mind as you have it on your sheet there as we think through the theological meaning for dishonorable vessels, or vessels of wrath, it says in our text. These vessels of wrath are recipients of God's wrath, not just in the future, but also in the here and now. Again, look at our text, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience Here's a key phrase, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Another thought I had when I thought I would bring in props is I would bring in one of those vessels and smash it. Wouldn't that have been cool? Have a tarp up here prepared for destruction. Okay, well, let's think through what, what all this means. I, I was going to turn into, uh, wasn't there like a clown who did that kind of stuff? Uh, there's, a clown, there's a famous clown who like smashed things all the time. I can't think of his name. Beside the point, that's not in my notes, why am I talking about that? Um, God will demonstrate His powerful wrath on these vessels of wrath, and this is a future destruction. When you look at that key phrase at the end of verse 22, there is certainly a future destruction that is in view. But the question, of course, becomes, who did the preparing? Look down at your text, doesn't it say, prepared for destruction? Now, 
Is that prepared by the vessels themselves or by God? And that's a very big theological question that has some pretty significant theological implications. And here's what's fascinating, is in the Greek, you can't get it from the grammar that's used. When Paul here is writing, and he uses the verb for preparation when he says that there's preparing for destruction, that verb could be read in the middle voice or in the passive voice. What's the difference? Well, if it's in the middle voice, that means that the one who is being prepared is actively involved in the preparation. And theologically, you'd be saying, well, they chose to sin, they chose to rebel, and so this is just the natural conclusion of that. Their choice to sin leads them here. They're involved in it. But there's a, a, a chance here to read it in the passive voice, where you're reading it as God Himself prepared them for destruction. And last week, Dean brought up a couple of key verses that would coincide with that idea. You've got 1 Peter 2, talking about some people were appointed to doom, appointed to doom by God. In Proverbs 16.4, I think, is that the one? Proverbs 16.4, God has made everything uh, for its time, even evil for the day of destruction. So, what's the theological implication of that? Well, the theological implication of that is this doctrine called double predestination, where God predestined the elect for glory, and He predestined the uh, non-elect for destruction. And even apart from their own involvement in preparing themselves for destruction, they were prepared for destruction. And that those people were created for the sole purpose of being destroyed, so that He would make His power known among them. And Paul here is, could be presenting that question saying, what if God did that? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to do that? That could be Paul's question. Well, uh, we're not going to be able to answer that question now or ever, but uh, those are the two options. And when you think, okay, were these people created only to be destroyed? Well, Paul is pretty ambiguous on that point. His point is God is sovereign to do whatever He would like, whether He did that or not. And I want you to turn back in the book of Romans to chapter 2, and there's a passage here that coincides with this passage in Romans 2. If you look at verse 4, we'll read verses 4 and 5, Paul asks them, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So what do you have going on here? Well, you've got God being sovereign and you've got man being responsible. In verse 5 specifically, whose fault is it that people are going to receive wrath? Well, it's their fault because of your stubbornness, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of judgment. And yet, who is sovereign over these things? Who is sovereign over who is chosen? Well, of course, God is. And so you wrestle with these things, and you never come to an answer, but it's good to wrestle with them when the text calls for it. And you end up at the end of the day, no matter you know, where you end up on these spectrums, spectra, where you end up on these spectra, is that right? Uh, you end up with this idea of, well, God is sovereign and man is responsible, really no matter how you look at it. And that's where Paul is leading us, is that God is absolutely free, and these vessels of wrath deserve the wrath that they're receiving. He doesn't show wrath toward any vessel that didn't deserve wrath. 
Now, he shows mercy to vessels who don't deserve mercy, but we'll get to them in a moment. So God is demonstrating his powerful wrath, not just only in the future, they're prepared for destruction, but also in the present. Turn with me to Romans 1, back to the start of the book. We see in this very book that not only do people receive the wrath of God in a future time, known as the time of destruction, but they receive wrath even in the present. Look at verse 18 of Romans 1, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is, present tense, evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So we see in just these two verses that there's present tense stuff going on, evidence for God within and His wrath on them in the present. You can also think of Jesus' teaching, those who uh, don't believe in the Son of God are condemned already, right? There's an already aspect to that condemnation and that wrath. If you look at verse 27 in Romans 1, same chapter where you are, it says that in the present tense, they receive in their body, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. There's a consequence for sin in the present. Now, of course, there's a consequence for sin in the future, the day of destruction, but even in the present, there's a consequence for sin that's flowing from the wrath of God. And in chapter 9, we've heard the example of Pharaoh. We looked at that over the last couple of weeks. God raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of demonstrating his power and even his wrath against sin in that present time when Pharaoh was alive. So because these vessels of wrath exist, we learn more about God's power, God's patience, and God's glory. I hope you see that language back in our chapter for today, 9 verses 22 and 23, that he's demonstrating His wrath through these vessels of wrath. He's demonstrating His power, His holiness, His glory, and even His patience through these vessels. None of my commentaries had this cross-reference, but you can write down 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16. I'm going to read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 14 to 16. And I was surprised none of them did because I think this is just the perfect cross-reference for this idea. Listen to what Paul says to this church about those unbelieving Jews who are also vessels of wrath. 1 Thessalonians 2.14, it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Listen to what he says about these unbelieving Jews. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Isn't that an amazing thought? Wrath has come upon the unbelieving Jews who are deserving of it because of the way they hinder the gospel, the way they oppose God. They're not pleasing to God in any way. So they are filling up with their sins to the utmost, the wrath of God in the present age. These are the vessels of wrath, even the unbelieving Jews. So the question, you know, what is God doing with Israel as He's going through this section? Well, He's saying, well, God made some of them, most of them, the vast majority of them at the present time to be vessels of wrath. That's what Paul's saying. Q&A time on that. We can do questions for a few minutes before moving on to the next section. We need to test these microphones out. Someone ask a question. 
Oh, the blanks. Very good, Walker. Okay. So on the right side, you've got object of blank. So under dishonorable vessel, they are objects of wrath and judgment. Objects of wrath and judgment. And right underneath that, to the, or those whom God has chosen to harden, that's back in verse 16, whether Jew or Gentile, in accordance with their natural state. So they're objects of wrath and judgment. They are those whom God has chosen to harden, whether Jew or Gentile, in accordance with their natural state. Okay. Andrew. So I would arguably say that this is, other than the sovereignty of God, this is one of the most angry emotional points of Christianity among believers and believers. Yep. Yep. He's sovereign over everything, just not me. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he controls and ordains all things except for me. Well, yeah, it's difficult. That's a very difficult thing. Um, perhaps not as difficult as engaging a fellow believer who disagrees with this. Uh, you know, for the unbeliever, they reject all sorts of things already. And so this kind of, it is difficult, but so is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So is the fact that Jonah was in the mouth of a great fish. So is it that God created all things out of nothing, right? It, I think it kind of falls into those categories. And if you start accepting those things as you're coming to faith, it just kind of comes along with it. But if you come to faith without this idea of God's, shall we say, very involved sovereignty, and you think he has a limited sovereignty, then it can be much more difficult to engage your fellow brother and sister later on down the road. When they are gospel believers headed to heaven, that we're going to be with them for all eternity, and you're starting to try to maybe convince them in the here and now, those are, I think, the hardest conversations. And at one point, I would say the majority of us were on that side where we were believers in the gospel and didn't understand the full extent of God's sovereignty. Now, there are some people who do come to faith and they bring right with them this understanding of God's sovereignty as it's presented in Scripture, and that's a blessing. Because when you've believed the gospel and you, th- you think it's of your own doing, <laughs> and then you learn that it's not, trying to give, give up your will as a Christian is really hard. It's really hard. So, so a follow-up. Yeah. No. But that one seems very legitimate. Yep. And it answers a lot of questions. It does, absolutely. Joe. Aren't the Jews still waiting for the Messiah? Yeah, the, in their minds they are, yes, right. And would the Holocaust and all of that be God's wrath? Well, um, so when it comes to why does, why does suffering happen, we've got a good little pamphlet in the free resources shelf that walks through that. Holocaust would obviously fit into this idea of suffering. Uh, there is a sense in which suffering is a direct response of God's wrath in our lives. There is a sense. Um, now, it's tough. Like First Peter. We were going through First Peter where um, the church was being persecuted. They were displaced. 
they ended up in Asia Minor, and it seemed like likely they were from Rome or that area, and they ended up in Asia Minor, early church. And they were being persecuted. Now, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, calls this persecution the judgment of God that begins with the household of God. Now, how does that make sense? You've got people who are sinning by persecuting God's people. I mean, Jesus talking to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? That's a sin. And yet, at the same time, God is very involved in all of this, and He's using it to discipline His church and to judge His church. This is the same theme of uh, Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the prophet's asking God, what, these, these enemies are attacking us. What's going on? And he's saying through the prophet, God's bringing these nations to discipline His people Israel. So, these are nasty events that occur, but they still don't fall outside the purview of God's sovereignty, whether He's using it for wrath or however He's using it, uh, that's His prerogative. No more questions. All right. Uh, <laughs> vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. <laughs> no, no, no. What are we doing? Okay, Jim, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. True. Yeah. Yeah. Atheists are upset because you're not calling calling them children of God. (laughs) Hmm. Okay. Yeah. God has set eternity on man's heart, right? And I think that might be a manifestation of that, but Jerry. Yes. Right. But it's the perseverance that becomes part of our makeup, our character. It defines who we are in Christ yeah. in that sense. And we have trials just to do that. Mm-hmm. So trials have a reason. Yep. And that reason is to be approved. Yep. There you go. Yep. Romans 5 talks about that too. The start of Romans 5. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope, right? So in among God's people, there's an element of God's judgment. There's an element of God's testing, bringing forth, strengthening their faith. Um, but yeah, when you take an event like the Holocaust and say, okay, what's God doing? Or, or not, not even with the Jews. You look at um, Mao and China. You look at Lenin, Stalin. Okay, what's God doing? Well, that's God's prerogative. Okay, vessels of honor. Let's talk about vessels of honor now, or vessels of mercy. Again, going back to verse 21, God made them, right? So God makes vessels for dishonor, God makes vessels for honorable use, and these are the vessels of mercy. Just as God demonstrates His powerful wrath on the vessels of wrath, He demonstrates His powerful mercy on the vessels of mercy. You can put there in that blank under that vessel, 
They are objects of God's mercy and compassion. Object of God's mercy and compassion. He's going to demonstrate that mercy in their future glorification, but He's also going to be demonstrating that powerful mercy in the present, and anybody who's been saved can testify to that. We have experienced God's powerful mercy, and His powerful mercy is demonstrated, uh, should be demonstrated through our lives. So, just as we uh, mucked up that one because it's a common use vessel, we can make this one, you know, kind of pretty if you want. We can do... uh, all sorts of designs. I'll put stars on mine. Doesn't that look nice? Or um, this is like not even the same culture, but we can we get the idea of nice looking graphics like that or whatever and a nice swirl. There you go. It's a vessel, a vessel for honorable use. It's a showing off vessel, and he's showing off his mercy through these vessels. Now it's important to note that as we talk about vessels of mercy. What is baked into that word mercy, or what is germane to the notion of mercy? It's that they needed mercy, right? They were under God's judgment or under God's condemnation in some sense before. To have received mercy means that you've been granted or you've been... um, Grace is being granted something you haven't deserved. Mercy is God's withholding what you do deserve. So we've deserved something as vessels of mercy in some previous state. We deserve something, and yet God has chosen to show mercy. And just like with the vessels of wrath, because these vessels of mercy exist, we understand more about God's power, patience, and glory. Through the vessels of mercy, God is demonstrating those same attributes as with the vessels of wrath, His power, patience, His glory. We looked last week, Dean talked about the riches of His glory. That's verse 23. Through the vessels of mercy, He's making known the riches of His glory. I want to read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Paul wrote to this young pastor, It is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, listen to this, For this reason I found mercy, Paul says, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. See the same terms at play here, that we have received mercy as vessels of mercy, that God might demonstrate His perfect patience. So God's demonstrating the same attributes, but in a different way through the vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And then as we get into verse 24, Paul identifies who the vessels of mercy are with the pronoun us. You see that? He talks about the vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. That's their future, uh, the future demonstration that God is going to put His great mercy on display in their glory. But then he identifies who they are in verse 24 by saying, even us, whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So who are the vessels of mercy? Well, those are the ones who are in Christ. Believers in Christ, believers in what Jesus has done, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Jew or Gentile. So the Jews believing in their Messiah, recognizing Him coming and dying in their place for their sins, rising again on the third day, those Jews who bow the knee to Jesus, well, they are the vessels of mercy but also the Gentiles, the one who recognized Jesus as the world's Savior. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, recognizing that they are able to come to God now through the work of Christ. They are vessels of mercy too. And there are Jews and Gentiles in each type of vessel. Or these vessels are demonstrated through both Jews and Gentiles at different degrees, right? We have demonstrated here in verse 24, we have Jews and Gentiles both who are vessels of mercy if they've believed in Christ. Yet we also know that these dishonorable vessels, the ones who are under God's wrath, those are also made up of Jews and Gentiles, all those who reject Christ. So we could say, of course, in our present age, you've got the church and the world. That's the lens we could view it through at the present time. And so we understand that the vessels of mercy are Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ's church. Ephesians chapter 2 is a good cross-reference. You can write down Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11, Ephesians 2, 11 and following, where Paul is talking to this church about Jews and Gentiles coming together in one new man. There's a new unity that exists now among Jews and Gentiles who have believed in Christ, one new man. And that's the same concept of their vessel of mercy together as they believe in Christ, but individually they are vessels of mercy And what's implied here in verse 24, um, like I've already said, you've got the vessels of mercy being demonstrated in the church and the vessels of wrath being all of the lost. That constitutes all of the lost. And so in that uh, line below honorable, those blanks that you have, these honorable vessels are those whom God has chosen, whether spiritual Israel or believing Gentiles, whether spiritual Israel or believing Gentiles. And the flip side of that, all unbelieving people, whether Jews or Gentile, are vessels of wrath. And you see this in the New Testament in various places. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3, you can write down 2 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about when Moses is read in the synagogues to this present day, there's a veil that lies over the Jews' hearts. And you know why? It says right there, because God has hardened their minds. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. Same idea as God doing hardening and showing mercy as He wills. I think that's verse 16 in Romans 9. He'll have mercy on whom He has mercy. He'll have compassion on whom He has compassion. Those to whom He shows mercy are the ones He wills to show mercy. And then He hardens whom He hardens. And there are unbelieving Jews right now, many of them, God's chosen to harden them, and they're blinded. And you also have at the start of Ephesians 2, Uh, the first three verses of Ephesians 2, where he talks about all people were in sin. What were we doing? We were following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath, just as all of mankind, all of mankind in their natural state, they're children of wrath, right? So we have these big themes, not just in Romans 9, but all throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters. And so the big point as I conclude this vessel business, the big point is that God is doing what He wills to do, and He's totally just for doing it. God is doing what He wills to do, and He's totally just for doing it. And now He's going to head back as we get into uh, verses 25 and following. He's going to get back into specific talk about Israel, the nation of Israel. But He's established the point here with this illustration. God's free. God's free. Okay? Other thoughts or questions? Yes, sir. All of man's problems are the fact that we are so tiny 
It's that initial sin, the original sin, when she saw that the fruit was good, good for eating, and decided in that moment to override God's command because she knew better. Yeah, that's it. Yep. What else? You're going to give me 20 minutes to finish it? Good. I'll probably use all of them. All right? Well, let's read verses 25 to 29 and then talk about this Old Testament uh, business here where Paul's quoting from Hosea and Isaiah. Let's start in verse 24. Paul says, "...even us, these are the vessels of mercy, whom He called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As He says also in Hosea, I will call upon those who, or I will call those who are not My people, My people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not My people, there they shall be called sons of the living God." Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, Sabaoth, someone say that for me, there we go, had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. All right? So, the big idea you see on your sheet there for this section is that at the present time, God is drawing near a people who were once not His people. And we have Paul here applying Hosea's prophecies about Israel to Gentiles who believe. Now, there is an argument for he's not doing that. I just, that's not the view I take. I think he's very clearly applying Hosea's prophecies about Israel to believing Gentiles. And we'll turn back to Hosea in a moment and look at that. But let me give you some big idea stuff first, okay? Some big idea thoughts. God's redemptive plan includes both now and in the future Jews and Gentiles being among His people. God's redemptive plan includes that idea, Uh, meaning that your Jewish ethnicity is unnecessary to be saved, okay? I want to read to you this from Isaiah 19. This is Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. I think this is important for you to write down that you remember this reference. This is really striking. In Isaiah 19, God is condemning Egypt for their sin. He's, He's speaking to Egypt, telling them He's going to judge their sin. There's wrath that's going to visit them. And then He talks about a glorious future day for Egypt, the ones who enslaved the Jews. We're not talking about Jews. We're talking about Egypt and even Assyria. Okay, listen to this. Isaiah 19, starting at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So maybe at this point you're thinking, okay, yeah, they're pagan worship or whatever, they're Egyptians and Assyrians. But no, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. And thirdly, notice third in the list, and Israel, my inheritance. There's coming a day where Egypt's going to be called God's people, Assyria's going to be called the work of His hands, and of course Israel, His inheritance. 
That's pretty amazing. If you were in Israel at the time Isaiah wrote this, threats all around all the time, particularly from the Assyrians, you got the the history with Egypt. You're thinking, what? There's coming a day where he's going to call Egypt and Assyria his people, and we're all going to worship together Israel as the third party? So, I just want to issue that to you as the big idea. This has always been a part of God's plan, a plan of redemption, bringing in Jew and Gentile together. So, that's important to note. A second thing to note is that Paul is not the only one who takes an Old Testament prophecy about Israel and applies it to Gentiles, believing Gentiles, even the church. Peter has done this. We covered this on Wednesday nights. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, I think I have time to read this to you. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, listen to some of the same themes that Paul's bringing up in Romans 9. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Now he quotes the Old Testament. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, quoting the Old Testament again, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Verse 9, But you are, he's talking to the church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. All Old Testament references being applied now to the church. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but you are now the people of God. He's quoting the same Hosea passage Paul's quoting in Romans 9. You were once not a people, but you're now the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Paul's not the only one. Peter in 1 Peter 2 does the same thing with even the same passages. So there's a new covenant community that's sharing in blessings in Christ, and the God of Israel is working among the Gentiles. And all of you can say amen to that, right? Except for Jo, because she's got Jewish ancestry, so uh, yes. Um, <clears throat> so there is a, this is a precedented aspect of the end times picture. It's not unprecedented that Jew and Gentile are together. It's precedented in the Old Testament itself. And there's a community of believers now who were chosen and appointed as vessels of mercy, both of Jews and Gentiles. So, as we think of Hosea specifically, look again at Romans 9, verse 25. Hosea is being quoted in verses 25 and 26. Prophetically, there's an already not yet aspect to Hosea's prophecy, and there's also an expanded significance to Hosea's prophecy. So turn with me to the book of Hosea. He's the first of the minor prophets right after the book of Daniel. So if you find Daniel, just go one book to the right, and that's Hosea. And we're going to start in Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Now we'll look at verses 9 and 10. Now we'll look at verses 8 through 10. Now Paul is actually quoting them not in chronological order according to Hosea. He actually quotes chapter 2 before he quotes chapter 1. But let's look at Hosea 1 starting at verse 8. And before we do that, Jerry Bowman, can you give us a 30-second summary of the book of Hosea? Of the up to this point in chapter 1. 
nice and loud. All right, and that is one grand picture of what God is doing with Israel. So, God is using this relationship between Hosea and Gomer and their children to demonstrate what He's doing with the nation of Israel. So, we're talking about children, and there are some strange children names here. Starting at verse 8, Hosea 1.8, when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo, Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Wow. Verse 10, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, which God just said to them, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So God is telling Israel in that moment, you are not my people, and I'm not your God. And he follows it up in the very next verse by saying, in that place where it was said to them, Israelites, you're not my people, it'll be said to them, you are my people. So what's this verse saying? Well, it's saying there's going to be a future time of redemption of Israel, where they will be reconciled to God. Okay, now look at chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. This is the other verse that Paul quotes in Romans 9. We'll start in verse 21, the last three verses of Hosea 2. God's talking about putting Israel back into their land in a future day. And look at the other stuff that's going on in that day. Hosea 2.21, it will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel, a nickname for Israel in the moment. Verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. He's going to sow Israel for himself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So again, he's describing this prophet inspired by God, describing a future blessed hope for Israel where they'll be back in their land. There will be agricultural blessings. You see that in the passage? He's going to call out and going to rain, the ground's going to respond to the rain, the grain's going to respond to the ground. I mean, things are going to grow. There's going to be uh, all kinds of fruition in the land for Israel. And he's also going to say to them, more important than all of that, you are my people. And they're going to respond and say, you are my God. So there's going to be a, a holistic renewal with Israel. Sometimes we can write off those physical blessings that come with this and say, Ah, God doesn't care about land. I once heard Hank Hanegraaff when he was doing the Bible Answer Man programs say, well, God doesn't care about real estate. Read the Old Testament, Hank. Uh, he talks a lot about real estate. He's talking about land, and he's talking about what's happening in the land. And that's important. It's very important. We can't write it off and say, well, God doesn't care about physical stuff. Of course He cares about physical stuff. He made the world. All right? He made our bodies. There's going to be a holistic renewal, and this is specifically for the nation of Israel. However, we get to Romans 9. You can leave Hosea now, and you can go back to Romans 9. And in verse 25, 
(laughs) Paul quotes this passage from Hosea talking about a future for national Israel, and he applies it to believing Gentiles. He says, Hosea says, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. I think what Paul is doing here is seeing a principle in what God is doing with Israel, what He's done in the past and what He's going to do with Israel. He's seeing a principle there, and He's applying it now to believing Gentiles. He's not saying the Gentiles have usurped this promise from Israel. He's not saying that. But He's saying that in the same way that God is doing this with Israel, He's now doing it with Gentiles. And you could even say with believing Jews too, because it was true for all of us before we believed in Jesus Christ that we were not His people, right? We had to be adopted. For those who believed in the name of Jesus Christ, He gave them the right to become children of God. We had to be adopted. And so that principle gets applied to every believer because there was once a time where we were not His people, and yet now we are His people. We were once not beloved, but now we are beloved through the salvation that comes through Christ. You'll notice in verse 26, Paul includes from the original prophecy the geographical terms. It shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called my people. Now, for Israel, that has great significance. For us, we don't have that geographical significance. There was never a time where you were standing on a piece of earth and God said, okay, you're not, my, you're not my son, you're not my daughter. And then later you came back to that piece of earth and He said, okay, you are my son, you are my daughter. But for Israel, there's this, there's this idea where they were in the land and God said, you're not my people. And they're going to be driven out. They're going to be dispersed. They're going to be punished in many ways, judged in many ways. And yet there's going, coming a day where they'll be back in the land and He's going to say, you are my people. And they're going to reply, you are our God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that awesome? So there's stuff here that does apply to us in principle, but all of it applies to Israel literally and will be fulfilled literally. It's the same God and the same principles at play. So the already not yet aspect is that, well, God is doing what was prophesied, but He's not yet doing it to the full measure with Israel. He's already doing it among believing Jews and Gentiles, but He's not doing it to the fullest measure with the nation of Israel. Oh, I think I can skip that part because we only got a few minutes left. So this is the people of God, these vessels of mercy, whom God has said, you are my people, and their position is based on God's free choice. Now, the the remaining verses, 27, 28, and 29, is a quotation uh, that's put together from various portions of Isaiah. He's taking from different parts of the letter, and he's putting them together to convey a thought. And notice how he starts off in verse 27 by saying, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. That's why I believe the previous section is about Gentiles, particularly, is because here he's talking about Israel particularly, and he notes it as such. Israel cries out concerning Israel, verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. That's physical Israel, not spiritual Israel, physical Israel. They're going to grow like the sand of the sea in accordance with the Abrahamic covenant. It is the remnant that will be saved. That's spiritual Israel. Remember a few weeks ago, Tyler had those charts we were looking at, those circles that met at certain points. There's physical Israel that's going to grow. It's going to be expansive. And yet, when it comes to spiritual Israel, there's just going to be a remnant or yours might say seed, a seed. 
Now, why does a remnant or a seed even remain in Israel? Because God chose. Because out of God's freedom, He chose this remnant to be vessels of mercy. And that seed is being preserved because there's coming a day, and we're going to see this in this section, there's coming a day where that seed's going to grow and bloom, and all Israel will be saved. That's what He says in chapter 11. If God wouldn't have done this, and you see that in verse 29, if it, wouldn't, if it wasn't God who left to us a seed, <laughs> we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have been totally wiped off. And how many nations have come and gone? We talked this past Wednesday night in 1 Peter about Babylon. Where's Babylon? Right? You can name all kinds of nations, cities, empires, gone. But Israel's hanging around. Israel's hanging around because God's up to something. That's right. There are promises made to them that will be fulfilled literally. The remnant remains because of this. And I want us to keep reading. Because of God's work, the remnant remains. Verse 30, so what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You can imagine Paul was writing to some people who were thinking, well, I thought when Messiah came, all Israel would be saved. And what Paul's doing is saying, look at the Hebrew Scripture. Right there in Isaiah, it says, oh, there's only going to be a remnant. The nation's going to grow, but only a remnant will be saved, okay? Now, there's more he has to say on that. That's not where the story ends, but he's first pointing this out and saying, look at what the Scriptures say. Ethnicity doesn't save, and this is what we're going to look at next week. Only the righteousness that comes by faith saves. Ethnicity doesn't save, but righteousness that comes by faith. They were pursuing righteousness by works, therefore they're not saved. Yet, they're also not wiped out. Though they deserve it, they're not wiped out because God has a plan. In conjunction with these covenants, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, He made these covenants with Israel. And in conjunction with those, their remnant remains because there's coming a day when it's going to come to full fruition and that seed is going to grow and bloom and all Israel will be saved. That's chapters 10 and 11. Okay? Time for a couple questions. We did it. Joe. They They do have crops growing, yes. Just imagine the crops they'll have in the Messianic kingdom. Won't that be something? They'll be, they'll be fuller, better in every way. Yep. Think of all the, thing, all the toil and hardship that farmers have to go through now to make things grow and the, the risk of things not growing. And yet there will be a day when there's a promise being fulfilled. That It, it even says in Hosea, those promises, there are all kinds of things listed, promised for Israel in Hosea 1 and 2. I encourage you to read all of Hosea 1 and 2 to see the fullness of it. I think I have my sheet up here where I wrote down several, several of the promises. These are the things that God's going to do in Israel. There will be a full national restoration. Israel and Judah will be together, which at the time Hosea wrote that was pretty mind-blowing. They're going to be restored. Israel and Judah together are going to be gathered under one leader. We understand that to be their Messiah. The nation will grow in that restored state. 
Yahweh will take the nation into a desert place away from their idols and show the nation special care. The place of Achan's sin, when you read about Achan in the Bible, it'll become a place of blessing as the promised land will be fully realized among the people. Yahweh will no longer be regarded as a harsh master by the nation, but as a husband, it says. The nation will dwell in total safety from animal threats. That's promised in Hosea. Or threats of war or from other nations. Yahweh will initiate a new beginning with that nation. It says they'll be betrothed to him. There will be agricultural blessing in the land for the nation, and he will act as their spiritual farmer overseeing the nation in the land by showing compassion and assuring the people of their relationship to him. Isn't that awesome? They don't deserve it. But he's giving it to them to show his power, his patience, his glory. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, you, you sit here unique in your Jewishness. Yeah, Jews and Gentiles, one new man, right? Good. One more question? Or no more questions? Just a comment. There are more places in the Old Testament when you carefully where God does obviously show his blessings and his concern for the Gentiles go along with. Yeah. Why people just feel it has to be either or is so strange. Uh, even noticing Ezekiel this. Hmm. Well, yep, you got to observe when you study the text to see that kind of stuff. Okay, Joseph, you're the last one. There you go. That's it. Yeah, this is like, this is uh, justice and the natural conclusion. This is special grace and mercy, regeneration and new creation, unnatural from this. It's very natural that this clay become this. It's unnatural that God would use it for such a, an amazing thing. Okay, Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much again for the text and for what's ahead of us today. Please give us a sweet time of fellowship. Bless the singing time, the more study in your word, each conversation. Give us just a a real sweet time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.